Welcome to the Presbyterian and Reformed Churchmen podcast. This is episode two, and I'm Pastor George. And what I'm doing here is bringing in an episode that I hosted on uh, another podcast that I do with Pastor Darren Stone. And this is an interview with Dr. O. Palmer Robertson. Dr. Robertson is one of the founders of the PCA. He's been a missionary in Africa for almost 30 years. He's taught in a number of our Reformed and Presbyterian seminaries, such as Westminster Theological Seminary, Covenant Theological Seminary, Reformed Theological Seminary, Knox Theological Seminary. He's the author of Christ and the Covenants, and many of us have come to understand covenant theology through uh, that book written about 40 years ago or more now at this point. And he's working on other books. And so this, what we're going to hear now is actually uh, Dr. Robertson's take on the founding of the PCA. And the reason we're putting it or I'm putting it on this podcast is because he has a lot to say about ruling elders, uh, the significance of them for the PCA and in the founding and their their importance. And so uh, I know this will be a blessing. I want to get this into as many, um, put it out there in as many different avenues as I can, because he has so much good insight to share. I hope you enjoy. You know, one of the reasons, uh, Palmer, you know, you're you're in Piedmont Triad Presbytery with Darren and myself, and um, but you've been away for a little while too. But one of the real reasons we want to have you on is it was it was hailed as a, a monumental moment that you were at General Assembly. You were taking pictures with people at this General Assembly. You got the chance to speak at the General Assembly, and I've just heard on other podcasts and other places how excited. Uh, they are and were that you were there and active. And I said, man, we got to we gotta hear from uh, this dear saint who's been with us since the founding of our denomination and, and hear some of his perspectives. And so uh, that's that's part of why we wanted to have you on. Well, thank you very much. And it's a, it was a real joy to be back among the, the brothers again. And, you know, there's nothing like a general assembly. The, the singing is absolutely inspiring and uh, anticipating what heaven will be like. 50 years in the PCA and, well, I don't know that you want us to say your age on here, uh, but... I'm 85 years of age. There, there, thank you. Eighty-five, and so you—you you were thirty-five when the PCA was formed, and and uh, when what denomination were you ordained in? Right, I was a part of the PCUS, the Southern Presbyterian Church, as it is lovingly was lovingly known, mm-hmm. and was there. You know, I I would have to think as to let's see, fifteen. I was ordained in about. Uh, 55 or 65 1965 i'm, I'm thinking I, I may have my figures wrong mm-hmm. uh, 65 i think yes i think i was ordained in the pcus in 1965 in the in the south mississippi presbytery at a metropolis city called picayune mississippi <laughs> And I had some of my happiest years yes. as a pastor in Picayune, Mississippi. Before. The metropolis city of, of Picayune, and Picayune means small, right? Is that right. Picayune right. is, the, is the smallest French coin, 
And Smallest the story is, in, Picayune is very close to New Orleans, and mm -hmm. there was a woman who was from the area that eventually was named Picayune, who was the uh, the editor of the Times Picayune in, <laughs> in New Orleans. And they asked her, well, this little area is developing, what should we call it? And she said, well, name it after my newspaper, Picayune. So it's, mm -hmm. that's where it got its name, Picayune, Mississippi. That's right. The New Orleans Time Picayune. That's the that's the newspaper down there, right there. How do you know that, Darren? Darren, how do you know? Well, that? I so I I formerly pastored First Presbyterian Church in Biloxi, Mississippi, which oh, is yeah. okay. not too far away from Picayune, and and went to RTS in Jackson, and right. and I learned it. I just I just milked it for all I could work. I I, <laughs> I came from California to Mississippi, which was as much of a culture shock as you going from the United States to Africa, probably. Not so sure. it, was, it was quite a, it was quite a difference, but, but it's a, it's a, it's a great place. The Lord is, is, um, I mean, there are just so many wonderful godly people there and grateful for the, the time in Mississippi. And, and, um, so, I mean, thinking back to you having been ordained in, in, um, the, the mid sixties and, in Picayune, Mississippi, in the Southern Presbyterian Church, and then somewhere around um, seven, eight years into your ordained ministry, uh, everything kind of goes haywire, and there is the inception of the National Presbyterian Church, which is now known as the Presbyterian Church in America. Uh, tell us a little bit about that from, you know, just an eyewitness point of view and, and your vantage point of what that was like then, maybe some even lessons that we can learn now as as uh, members in the local church and those of us who are listening as pastors in the local church, um, but for just some of the, the lessons and experiences you had as the PCA came into being. Yes, one, one of the, my fondest uh, memories and experiences in the early days of preceding the PCA and its formation was the character of the pastors and the elders in that, in that Southern Presbyterian Church. If you'll excuse mm -hmm. me, having come from California down to Mississippi, in the South, you know, you can talk about the, the gracious South, and there is mm -hmm. a certain truth of that, in that, you know, these men were so committed to mm -hmm. the standards of the church, and to upholding those standards, but they mm -hmm fought the good fight in a gracious way. They were not combative. They took their stand and they were always courteous and gracious in the way they did it. But they did not waver in the stand that they took. Mm -hmm. The other thing that that affected that was such a blessing to me in those early days was the, the 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 character of the pastors and the lifestyle of the pastors i can remember 
the the they had so many wonderful lessons that that they taught in their lifestyle. That just one example comes to mind. There was a pastor in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, who was kind of on the other side of the railroad track. And then the large part of, of Hattiesburg was on this side of the railroad track. And mm -hmm. there was a, a movement to plant a new church. And uh, one of the arguments in Presbytery was no, no, we we can't we can't have any more churches. We've got more churches than than we can actually fill as it is. And to introduce another church is going to take all our membership away from our church. Mm -hmm. And this gracious pastor who had to overcome his location because he was on the other side of the railroad track, he stood up and he said. Brothers, when you've got gasoline stations, where do they congregate? One on this corner, one on that corner, one on the next corner. They don't bother one another. They attract one another. And the more churches we have, the better. Now, I want to tell you that any time anyone moved into that community, the first person to knock on their door day or night and visit and welcome them into the community was the pastor of that church on the other side of the railroad tracks. And, mm -hmm. But he was willing to risk everything. If anybody was going to lose members with this new church, he was the one that was going to do so. Mm -hmm. But he stood up in Presbytery and said, go for it. Go for it. It will just make us all richer to have another church. And I, you know, if we could get some of that feeling in, you know, this particular presbytery is very distinctive in that so many of the churches here are church plants. But I get the feeling that it might have been 10 years since we planted another church. I think we're starting one now, but uh, I was really distressed a few presbyteries ago when we closed down a church that we had trying to plant. I had never seen mm -hmm. that before. You know, I, that makes a lot of sense of that meeting. I remember you were, you, you've laid low since you've come into our presbytery, but that I saw it really bothered you that we would be closing that church. I think that might be one of the first times you, you spoke up in a presbytery meeting. And so thanks for sharing just your heart about that now, because I, I get it now. <laughs> yeah, I, I was ready. I was ready to volunteer to go and preach over there for free to keep that church mm -hmm. going. Mm -hmm. You just don't kill a church unless it's, you know, I, I can understand and I don't question the wisdom of the presbytery, but you know, you know, that's just one illustration of these men. They, they're they're warm-hearted and hardworking. I mean, they were knocking. How many pastors? I I just wonder how many pastors today do pastoral calls among their membership in their churches. I don't think I, I when I was in a church in Washington D.C. I 
we had 25 elders and 25 deacons. I couldn't possibly visit all the people, so I decided to visit all, start with visiting all the elders. Mm -hmm. I came to one of the elders' homes. I knocked on his door. He'd been an elder there for many, many years. He greeted me at the door with this big smile, stuck his hand out to me and said, Welcome. You are the first pastor that has ever come into my home. Well, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, how much visitation do we do in evangelism? Mm. You know, you can get, you can often get the, the gas customer list of new people as they come in. And in Picayune, we, we sent out invitations to every person who moved into town. You're welcome to our community. You're welcome to come and visit us. But, you know, to use creativity and, and that's, that's just, that was the attitude and atmosphere. And they weren't so wrapped up into all sorts of finaglings in church politics, if you want to call it that. They were out there taking the gospel. They were <laughs> revivalists, reformationists, you know, reaching out with, with for Christ with the gospel. I, I remember, well, I think it may have been Frank Barker, one of the early pastors. He there were some gathering together of ministers in a in a restaurant, and there had been some sort of question as to whether they should say a blessing openly, publicly, or whether they should you know, just, you know, say it quietly. Well, he gets down on his knees in the middle of the restaurant and opens his mouth and leads in prayer for the whole body <laughs> in thanks to the Lord. Well, you know, there you go. So, so just for our listeners to be clear, when this all these stories you're telling, this these are stories of the uh, the newly founded PCA or of the PCUS you were coming out of. It's well, it's the same people. Okay, yeah, but it it would be the newly founded PCA. There, there, yes, it 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 was mostly illustrations. Well, it, it would have gone. Back from the people, all of these people that I mentioned were founding fathers mm -hmm. of the PCA. Sure, Frank Barker, of course. So, what um, what were some of the the feelings of having to start a new denomination? I, I know, I know, you guys didn't just jump into that haphazardly. It, it, it must have been a mixture of feelings. What was it like? Yes, it it was it was. A difficult decision to make for some, and some decided that they, in conscience, could not feel that they could leave the denomination, and we totally respected them. That was another aspect. It wasn't, you know, you, you better come on and, and move along with us. It, it wasn't that kind of thing at all. But, you know, I, I do remember I was at that time teaching at Westminster and in Philadelphia, and I was outside the bounds of, of where all this activity was going. And I got a call from a pastor who was one of the early leaders of the church and uh, from Macon, Georgia. And he calls and he says, well, Palmer, 
are you with us or are you not with us? <laughs> I had to make my decision. Am I going to cut my ties? You know, for some people, there was the danger that they would lose all their, all the money that they had invested in retirement. Mm. You know, there was some possibility that churches would lose their, their properties. In the Northern Presbyterian Church, that happened regularly. In the Southern Church, because of a, a number of reasons, most of the churches, even the big ones like Coral Ridge Presbyterian, took their whole multi-million dollar building along with them when they came out. But you know, there was questions as to, and so they, you had to be ready to pay the price. And so many, many paid the price of cutting the ties, of venturing out, not knowing what what was going to be there and the Lord brought us together in a wonderful way. So what, what was it for you? If you could, if you had to summarize that in your mind, what were some of the key factors in you deciding to leave and, and join this new denomination? Yes. I, you know, I, the, one of the really sad things about the Northern Presbyterian church is that immediately after the, the kicking out of Machen and some of his followers that formed the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. They, they didn't leave. They were kicked out of the Northern Presbyterian Church. They were defrocked in a very unjust manner, Machen not even being allowed to speak in the General Assembly in his own defense and, and so forth. But they, uh, when they, they came out within just a few years, they divided again. And they divided over issues that were, in hindsight, were not really proper reasons for dividing. And as I personally looked at the PCUS and those coming out, ooh, Lord, don't let that happen. You know, let us not divide again. And let us have a spirit that will enable us to stay together even if we start on polar opposites and mm -hmm. uh, so that was one thing i had to to work through another was is there a legitimate biblical grounds for separation and some of my very respected people, the president of Reform Seminary that had just been founded a few years before then, Sam Patterson, decided not to leave the, the PCUS out of strong convictions. And we had to honor that. But so what, what my settlement was in what was called the, the Union Presbyteries where the PCA, the PCUS, the Southern Presbyterian Church, approved of the merger of presbyteries along the border of the North and the South, so that a person, if they were brought to trial for not believing the confession or the scriptures, they could decide whether they would be tried by the North, which had adopted the Confession of 1967, which denied the virgin birth of Christ, did not affirm the bodily resurrection of Christ, or they could choose to be tried in the South 
under the PCUS, which was still strongly holding to the Westminster Confession of Faith. And to me, that was a, a legitimate constitutional grounds because now we would have people at the General Assembly level, the highest court of the church, that would no longer be required to affirm the Westminster Confession of Faith because of these merged presbyteries. So that was something that I had to work with, work through. And in our day now in the, in the PCA, one lesson that I would say I would encourage us as brothers not to jump too quickly if, if we find ourselves in disagreement with other brothers in, in the PCA and separate ourselves. We have to be really sure that there is a strong and confessional grounds for a separation, if that's what you know, we should ever. And Lord, please, if possible, let us continue as, as one church and not a mm -hmm. you know, split P, split Presbyterian church. Mm -hmm. So what, I, I, I earlier before we started recording, I used the, the term grassroots with you and you kind of uh, reshaped what I was saying. But my question was, in the founding of the PCA and how the courts of the church were, were meant to operate and some of the heart behind the founders in, in writing our book of church order and all of that, how, how do you see or what's some of the reasoning behind how teaching elders and ruling elders and, and floor debates and committees and commissions operate? What is some of how uh, that began as the church was born in 1973? Yes, it, it goes back to the perception as to how the so our beloved Southern Presbyterian Church, the PCUS, had gone into error. How is it that we had moved away from our confessional standards. Well, part of that was the seminaries that led us astray. But the other thing in our perception was the, the denominational, the General Assembly committees, particularly the Committee on Christian Education. And the Committee on Christian Education was putting out literature, the, it was called <laughs> the covenant literature, interestingly. <laughs> they, they were working with the covenant. Mm -hmm. But these, these upper level committees were promoting doctrines and teachings of scripture that were accepting higher critical views, for instance, the unity or disunity of the book of Isaiah. And uh, behold, a young woman shall conceive and bear a son, rather than a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And so when the structure of the General Assembly was developed, I can remember so well Charles Donahue, who was very much behind this, one of our founding fathers, Charles was sharing with me how relieved he was when we set up this situation of the committees of commissioners, 
what was the committee of commissioners? The committees of commissioners were established so that they would be the place of accountability of the General Assembly committees. And these committees of commissioners were to have an equal number of ruling and teaching elders. Mm -hmm. And these ruling and teaching elders at the General Assembly would receive the reports of the permanent committees, such as Mission to the World, or Mission of North America, or Christian Education. Those committees would bring their reports to the committees of commissioners for their review and control. And if these representatives from all the different presbyteries, one elder, one teaching elder, one ruling elder, alternating from the various presbyteries would come together and the mission to the world executive would have to give account to these ruling and teaching elders. And the whole structure was designed to keep us from what we felt had led us astray, which was a basically a top-down governance, where those few that were in the committees of commission or the permanent committees would determine on their own what their policies would be, how they would function, what they would do with their money, all of those things. And if they produce some literature, the Christian Ed Committee, that, that 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 was for them to decide in the old days. But now they whatever they produced was subject to the review and control, not of more hierarchy, certainly not just of pastors or a selection of pastors, but of ruling and teaching elders that represented all the different presbyteries. So that's that was a very critical matter. The other. So let me. Uh, sorry to interrupt, uh, Palmer. So, yeah. you know, at this last general assembly, we we actually saw that in action in in quite a few ways, mm -hmm. where where the committee of commissioners. Uh, I I don't know if overrule is the right was the right word, but actually changed like didn't go with the committee recommendation, but uh, exercised that authority that they have by virtue of our agreed upon polity to, um, to, to take a cor different course of action. And so uh, I think, uh, thank you for those original, uh, for you founders who, who put that in place because I uh, appreciated the ability to do that. And I served on one of those committees myself. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a, a very healthy thing. And I think that was wonderful to see that functioning in this last General Assembly that that there were that these you know, committees of commissioners were there and doing their job. They had received the reports of the permanent committees in advance or bills and overtures and so forth, had reviewed them and then decided by their majority vote or even they could bring in a minority report, which in at least in one case ended up being approved by the General Assembly as a minority report of one of the committees of commissioners. So, you know, if we can just continue to to strengthen that, and it, it's a healthy thing because 
that that will encourage the those who are executives in the PCA to to understand that a part of our unity, a part of our abiding unity, will be when we do have an agreement from the presbyteries to what the General Assembly is doing. Oh yeah, I, I just was was thinking. I mean, you you have you have shared a lot about the history of the PCA and and some of the the facets of. Um, how the PCA came into being and what makes a PCA unique. A lot of that um, equality of teaching elders and ruling elders and, and much of what you just said on the the committee levels. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, Lord willing, and if the Lord tarries, the PCA will be intact in 50 more years. And in order for that to uh, to be the case, what what do you see the the church and, and I'm speaking specifically of our denomination uh, really needing to to double down upon right now? What what do we need to if we're going to be oh, uh, faithful to the scriptures, uh, true to the reformed faith, and obedient to the Great Commission? What is it that we truly need to double down upon in order for the PCA to to continue to to be a healthy denomination? In the years to come. Yes, I, I think to to be what it professes to be is is the main thing. That the church is satisfied to be what it professes to be. I, I don't see a lot of danger in the PCA at this point, at least, in trying to get involved in declarations about the government and mm -hmm. what should be happening in Washington, D.C. You know, there are issues, the abortion issue and so forth, that, that needs to be spoken to. But that was one of the, the elements of the old denomination that they began to drift into. But the other thing is to, to recognize that they're, they're, the devil is, is so subtle. The devil, devil is very subtle. Mm -hmm. And if we get into caucus as over against open debate for determining issues, we, we're going to lose the unity that we have. Mm -hmm. If you have a group of if, if, if the pattern comes where there's a group over here that are having a caucus before a presbytery meeting or before a general assembly and they're deciding all of these ways that they're going to, steps that they're going to follow to accomplish what they think ought to be done, and another group meeting over here trying to make plans to, to make their program work, you, then, then you've got the, the, the very basic structures of unity being destroyed. But if you have a, a concept that the way in which the church is decided, or is, issues are to be decided, is by open debate. And, and here again, this is where you, I would appeal to the lessons I learned from Africa, you know, in terms of worship, 
You start when everybody gets there and you finish when everybody's finished. And <laughs> as, as they say, you've got, you've got watches, but we've got time. And <laughs> what is the big hurry? Why, why does the mm -hmm. church need executives that will drive us rather than a deliberative assembly in the presbytery and in the general assembly where everyone is satisfied that they've had enough opportunity to express their views, they have been heard, and then a decision is made on the basis of uh, each man having his voice and his vote, and then a decision is made and we accept that decision. But when you have you get a feeling that things are being pushed, you know, then you destroy the potential of, of unity. Do you, do you thing, think, yes. Do you, do you think it's pra like the idea to push things to commissions and then you, what we hear is to trust the commission. Do, do you think that's a pragmatic argument because the PCA is getting too large or like, why do you think that is? Why do you think there's a move away from deliberative um, local and national meetings to more commissions to carry out work? Well, I, you know, I, I've seen some of that over the history of the, of the PCA. There was a point in which there was an effort to shorten the uh, assemblies. As a matter of fact, when, when, when the PCA was started, the committees of commissioners would start meeting on Saturday before the General Assembly. And then we would all, there would be no business done on Sunday. Everyone would go to worship and enjoy the fellowship of, of being worshiping morning and evening with the, with the brothers at various churches. And then Monday, everybody was ready to go with, with, with the business and Nobody asked any questions about going from Monday to Friday. So you started to Saturday and ran to Friday. And one of the arguments was, well, you'll get more ruling elders if you cut short the assembly from a Tuesday afternoon to a Friday morning. Well, that hasn't worked. We don't have any more representation percentage wise that way, but we've that cutting down of the time has, I think, been a factor that was a factor that was debated at different points, was decided upon and or tried and reversed for a while. But right now we, we've got a short assembly and you know, that, that's not, you know, it's not that you must have a long assembly, but and I think men need to appreciate the the value of everyone, you know. Please let some of the ruling elders have an opportunity to express themselves in presbytery meetings, in general assembly. Mm -hmm. Encourage them to come with understanding and to make their views known. I, you know, I, in the presbytery we're in, we have uh, 
really good ruling elder involvement. And I'm glad we have a Saturday meeting because it enables ruling elders to come. And you actually have to report. You have to get an excused absence if you don't send your REs. But mm -hmm. I, I come from a presbytery that I think in some meetings, wherever it was hosted, they would tell in that presbytery, that church, make sure you have your ruling elders there because those would be the only two ruling elders in the whole meeting or whatever would make a quorum. And I, I think in recent years, there's been a move to say, you know, let the teaching elders, let the pastors do the, the business of the church and you guys just shepherd the flock uh, kind of thing. And uh, so I appreciate your heart behind expressing the need for ruling elders to to speak up, to have a voice, to be involved in the courts of the church. Yeah. Any more thoughts on on that in particular? Good. Uh, nothing in particular, just just that we should all in, encourage our, our ruling elders. They, you know, they common sense is a is a very important factor, and. Uh, People, I, you know, as a minister, I'm speaking as a minister. Sometimes we're not as practical as we need to be. <laughs> and, uh, some voices from ruling elders, you know, uh, that's where most of the money comes from. It comes from the ruling elders, and they should feel like they have a right to decide where their money is going and be happy about how their money is being spent. Was, was there any kind of a um, noteworthy role ruling elders had in the founding of the of the PCA? Uh, yes, there, there were several organizations that preceded the formation of the PCA, and one of them was called Concerned Presbyterians, and it was uh, Kenneth Kyes from down in your original area in Miami was a major feature there. Uh, there was another Presbyterian Churchman United was uh, was of the ministers, but you know, this was an organization of the ruling elders. Another was the Pensacola Theological Institute, in which there was a lot of participation by ruling elders coming in, and the Presbyterian Journal was the magazine that it was started by L. Nelson Bell, who was the uh, father-in-law of Billy Graham from right up here in Asheville, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And he started that magazine to counter the liberal magazine that, that was called the Presbyterian Outlook. And uh, so the Southern Pres it was called the Southern Presbyterian Journal, started by a ruling elder. And he, he had been a missionary for many years as a medical doctor. And Ruth Bell Graham, if you know, she grew up on the mission field. But uh, there was a lot of lay participation in all of those different organizations that preceded the founding of the PCA. Yeah. So I know we're we're uh, we're running long. Maybe, but I would I would love to hear uh, some ministry reflections you have over 60 plus years of, of ministry as as like you said a jack of all trades a, a professor a, a missionary a theologian an author a pastor all of it, it, it this christian life that you've seen it all and you've seen it across the globe 
what would you what are what are some of your reflections and encouragements for for this generation of Christians? Uh, that's a big question. <laughs> Too big. Another episode. <laughs> I I don't know that I I can. You know, let's see. What kind of reflections can I give? <laughs> Maybe we'll have you on another day. <laughs> uh, but don't cut me off too quickly. I I do have good. a couple of thoughts that I. All right, good. I'm glad we we'll go as long as you want. So this is great. very interesting. There was an interview recently with of Sinclair Ferguson, and you know, someone you know he's a near he, he and I are about the same age. I'm I think I'm a little older than he. Yeah, maybe a, quite a bit older. But at any rate. <laughs> They were asking, you know, looking back over your career, what would you change? And one of the things that he said was more Bible. And you say, Sinclair Ferguson, more Bible? And I would agree 100%, more Bible. I do not think the younger generation really appreciates the prophets. I don't think they have read much in the book of Proverbs. I, and that's a judgment that I'm giving here, and that sounds negative, and maybe they do, but, you know, the, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible, is, is, is so critical for our own personal lives and for our ministry. The more we absorb the Bible, the the better. The other thing that he said is more prayer. And I think that's absolutely critical. And the third was more love. All of those elements are, are really very critical for the next generation and the generation after that. Too. Those things that are just so, so basic, mm -hmm. that makes the man and determines the, the future for the church how do you think and this will be my last question but how do you think the church can go about cultivating that in her people better than it is now I mean that better than the church is doing so now and when you think of you know that when I ask the question you know the next 50 years of the PCA you know our, our future pastors ruling elders Mothers, fathers, campus ministers, businessmen are all coming out of the children uh, that are that have yet to be born, even and including the children that are born. So, what can the church do now to uh, to to cultivate the church in a direction where there's more Bible, more prayer, more love? Mm -hmm. Great question, Darren. Yeah. Uh, yes, that is a very good question. I. Uh, I think prayer to the to that goal, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, I I think uh, along with that, more catechism. I mm -hmm. <laughs> interestingly, I I took copies of the children's catechism over to the Great Commission Church, the Sudanese, and uh, I gave out copies to the men and they said, oh, that looks good. Could, could we have some more? Well, how many more do you want? Well, five, well, 10, well, 15? Sure, I'll give you 15. Here's 15 right here. And could we have some more? Yeah, how many more you want? Well, 
15 more. Okay. So I'm taking in 30 children's catechisms, and they're excited about that. They're raising up their, that generation. But that, you know, that kind of foundation deep down in the soul that's memorized. Yeah. Calvin did it, said you, you've got to raise children that know the catechism they have to learn the catechism it has to be deep deep inside those basic doctrines and truths now as, as far as scripture reading i think by example and of course i would urge everyone to to get matthew henry's way to pray that i have revised uh, it's it's a Marvel, it's a absolutely unique book. All scripture turned into a form of prayer. It will change your life if you use it. Uh, I've, I've used it more than any other book in my over all my life since my conversion. My mother gave me her copy, and <clears throat> that will enlarge your prayer visions massively. And that I think encouraging you know, through the Bible reading, annual through the Bible reading. I've got to schedule my wife Joanna has developed her own five day schedule instead of seven days. And uh, she's coordinated the Psalms with the historical books of the Old Testament very interestingly. Uh, but, you know, you have to make a deliberate commitment and yes you start every january but you can start in march as well or you can start in october and read through the bible this year i had one good arp pastor's wife tell me that for something like 20 years she had read through the bible every year and that would be a great challenge i try to read through the psalms every month you know, if you go back and see what the monks used to do, they'd read through the Psalms every week and uh, memorizing large portions of scripture, just uh, all sorts of encouragement. The Navigator's you know, memory system is a great place to start. There are lots of practical ways. Wow. That's a great word. Dr. Robertson, thank you so much for those um, insights and words of wisdom, um, reflections upon your ministry, the contributions that you've made. What a what a privilege it's been to spend a little bit of time with you uh, today. It, it's uh, it's been a joy, and Lord willing, we'll have the opportunity to do it again in the future. Thank you so much, Darren and George as well. It was a blessing for me. Uh, likewise, likewise. And so I guess with that, we will sign off. And so, uh, yeah, maybe we'll have you on another day. This, this, was, this was great. Well, I hope you enjoyed that discussion with Dr. Robertson. If you'd like to hear the full length of that interview, you can go to that other podcast, Grace to Stand. So I'm Pastor George signing off on Presbyterian and Reformed Churchmen.